Support for OPB comes from our members and from our sponsors, like Mike Rosenberg from Columbia Credit Union. Mike says they trust what they see and hear on OPB, and that aligns with Columbia Credit Union's brand. From the Gert Boyle studio at OPB, this is Think Out Loud. I'm Dave Miller. In 2012, the Swinomish and Tulalip photographer and storyteller Matika Wilbur embarked on an enormous project to travel the country talking to and photographing people from what were, at the time, 562 federally recognized tribes. She ended up traveling 600,000 miles over a decade, visiting all 50 states and gathering the stories and images of more than 1,000 indigenous people. Wilbur's North Star for the project was to counteract the one-dimensional stereotypes and caricatures that have dominated the representation of Native people for centuries. My dream, she has said, is that our children are given images that are more useful, truthful, and beautiful. Wilbur's new book is called Project 562, Changing the Way We See Native America. Matika Wilbur, it is an honor to have you on. Oh, hello. Hi. I'm so grateful to be here. Uh, I'm Atika Wilbur. I'm from the Swinomish and Tulalip tribes, uh, coming to you today from Stahobsh country. So thank you for having me. I want to start with that description I mentioned, that um, images that are more useful, truthful, and beautiful. What does it mean to you for an image to be useful? Well, you know... If we believe that story shapes the individual and that, you know, she who wields the pen crafts the constitution and the treaties and the public policies, as y'all were just talking about, you know, then story is everything, right? And, you know, I I had this great editor one time who told me like, you know, the one liner in the picture is what changes the world. Mm. (laughs) And, And I actually fundamentally believe that the stories that we come to believe about ourselves, whether it's by creation story or, uh, you know, the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves, even on a daily basis, those are the stories that come to be our reality, our living truths, what we ascribe to. And so um, I believe that images uh, deeply impact Native psyche. And for far too long, images of Native people have been uh, stereotypical representations of Native people that are leathered and feathered on the prairie. And we've told a story that doesn't uh, uplift the contemporary complexity of our Indigenous intelligence or our strength or our resiliency or our contributions uh, to the society, but rather uh, a prehistoric, a pre 1900s narrative that's deeply damaging to the psyche of our youth. So we need uh, different images, right? We need positive images for our own youth to be able to see themselves differently. When did you decide you would take this project on? Yeah. Well, so yeah, like you said, the project is titled Project 562, Changing the Way We See Native America. And I want to just address for a moment uh, what you said about federally recognized tribes. And and that was certainly when I started the project, I I did want to visit all of the federally recognized tribes, um, which at the time were 562. But I didn't realize that along the way, I would also go visit state recognized tribes and urban Indian centers and meet with folks whose um status had been stifled by congress or you know because 
Congress still has the plenary power over who is and who isn't considered a tribal member, right? We're still card-carrying Native people. We're still quantified um, in a very racist way by our blood. And that... Um, and that is not necessarily at the core of our identity. So I often say that I visited over 500 tribes in the United States, uh, you know, because I would realize on my journey that I would also visit, visit with many more. But for me, the turning point and when I decided uh, that it was important for me to visit with tribes was when I was a teacher at the tribal school in my res. I taught here in Tulalip. And I was given the task of creating curriculum that we could use um, in our in our own tribal schools to be able to teach our students about themselves. And I wasn't able to find a comprehensive visual literacy curricula that I could use in my classroom um, that would actually help our students to understand, you know, what's happening in the Dakotas or, in, uh, you know, about Haudenosaunee's, how they crafted you know, our a modern American democracy, <laughs> you know, or about Miccosukees or uh, our Diné relatives that live within the Four Sacred Mountains and so on and so forth. And uh, there wasn't a book like that. And so, you know, I went to my elders back to the principal of my school and I said, you know, there really isn't something that I can, there isn't the materials, I, they don't exist. And I can't use these images that I found on Google. And I certainly can't use these uh, terrible images created by Edward S. Curtis. So, what should I do? And they said, you should go make the book then. <laughs> and so, you know, I sort of was just doing what I was told. <laughs> what kind of reactions would you get at the beginning when you would tell people about your plan? Well, you know, initially I went to folks at like the Seattle Art Museum and, and other places and, and, you know, asked for institutional support and, and people just laughed at me. <laughs> they just were like, it's not realistic, Matika. You know, people have tried, people like PBS and National Geographic have tried to go visit all of the tribes and they've failed. It's not a realistic quest. Why don't you try something a little smaller? <laughs> and, um, and so, yeah, a lot of people laughed at me and told me it wasn't possible. So initially I had to go, you know, to crowdfunding to find the resources uh you know so this project was supported by kickstarter the average donation was twenty dollars you know the first kickstarter raised thirty five thousand dollars in 20 days and it was all you know from community and uh, many of our contributors were native people who really believed in the mission you know in this idea that indigenous people deserve to see themselves reflected and to not be made invisible by society was there a point when you realized that this was going to work, that, that you could sustain this. Financially, it seems like maybe there was evidence early on that, that there would be community support, but logistically and, and even emotionally that you could do this. <laughs> are you asking me, like, why are you so crazy to think this was possible? No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I mean, you did it. No, I, I'm wondering when when you realized you could, or maybe it's maybe that you're you're saying like you never you you never thought you couldn't. <laughs> oh, there was certainly times of doubt, right? <laughs> yeah, certainly times of doubt. I um, I don't. I don't know. I think I just sort of took it one day at a time. You know, this project was started in ceremony. We asked permission. We put up the teepee. We prayed throughout the nighttime. And uh, the road man told me, you know, in the morning time when I was bringing in water, you know, if you have the courage to walk this path, all the ceremonial people will help you. Hmm. 
And, um, and that was true for me everywhere that I went, I encountered the kindness of strangers and the kindness of, um, our native people, you know, people let me stay on their couch. They fed me, they shared, talk story with me. They introduced me to their relatives, you know, and, uh, it was really that enduring kindness that gave me the strength to continue traveling, you know, and I'm an adventurer at heart. I think we all are, you know, I think we all have uh, this desire to bless our eyes with something new, you know, and for me, the, um, the road calls to me and, and I love being in new places, experiencing new cultures um, and meeting new people. You know, there's certainly times where it's bleak, right? Like where I'd run out of money or wreck my car or break my leg, you know, like all the terrible things happened because I was on the road for 10 years, you know, like one time I set my RV on fire, <laughs> like there was an intern in the front, you know, driving, going 70 miles an hour down the freeway and took a turn and bacon grease went flying while I was in the back cooking and you know the whole thing caught on fire and you know things like that things like that, that Wait, what you did like, you do what, you know, like, what am I doing <laughs> what did you do in that moment <laughs> baking soda okay um cool head <laughs> under fire uh, how much freedom did you give your subjects in terms of what they would wear or hold or or where they would be yeah, you know, I think it's critically important to share agency in projects like this. Um, I I didn't want to do as my predecessors had done, uh, which was, you know, um, which is really, you know, like the way that Western journalism approaches storytelling is from a very a capitalist colonial viewpoint, which is that if I hold the camera and I click the shutter, I own the image. And uh, that that is rooted in colonial belief systems and it's it, it's damaging right it's a damaging way of telling stories um and it's it's traumatizing for the subject and so i wanted to try to do this in a way that would be in good relation you know to, i wanted to be a good relative as i was doing this work so i would ask people you know where they wanted to be photographed how they wanted to be photographed what they wanted to be wearing uh what they wanted to talk about in their interview before interviewing them because i think it's you know very um patriarchal and colonial to believe that i know what would be the best thing to ask them <laughs> right and so you know i i did all those sorts of things beforehand and and before i published the book i sent every person in the book a copy of their image, a hard copy, uh, and also, you know, a, the copies of their pages and asked them if they wanted to make edits. So, you know, I think sharing agency is critically a part of this work. Yeah. If someone had come to you, if somebody else did this project and they came to visit you as one of the subjects, do you have a sense for where you would have taken them, how you would have wanted to be presented? Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, that's, that's really interesting because, um, I have had people come and take my photograph. <laughs> and, and obviously uh, yeah. there, there are self portraits as well, even in this book. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, I I think of myself as a person of the tide and I think of myself as my grandmother's granddaughter, you know, so my mother has this tree um, on our family property. We live on Wilbur Lane, you know, <laughs> it's really our family property. Mm. 
and um, it's where my afterbirth has been placed and also my daughter's afterbirth, my mother's, my grandmother's. And so that cedar tree is really important to us. So I think maybe I would want to be photographed there and or maybe near that property in some way, because I think, you know, like my identity, who I am is very much connected to those women, to those matriarchs in my life. If you're just tuning in, we're talking right now with the photographer and storyteller Matika Wilbur. Her new book, based on a decade of work, is called Project 562, Changing the Way We See Native America. Can you describe the conversation that you had early on with a, a legendary activist named John Trudell in San Francisco? Mm-hmm. Yeah, John, John Trudell is, for those of you who don't know, he's Lakota um, and, you know, was is and is quite famous for his work um, with the American Indian Movement aim to uh, take over Alcatraz in the 70s, but also at Wounded Knee and, you know, was really part of the civil rights movement in the 1970s to advocate for the civil rights of Indigenous people. And uh, John Trudell, you know, served the ultimate sacrifice. His family, Tina and their three children, uh, were actually burned alive in their home where it was boarded up and and they were um you know they and they passed away and and John in his conversation with me told me that he believed that that was done by the federal government and that it was an act of war and so his life you know as an activist was was forever changed and you know he said to me when uh, I was taking his photograph and asking him, you know, what does it mean to be an American Indian? He said, I think, you know, you're asking the wrong question because the only thing that an Indian has ever known is termination, relocation, assimilation. I think you need to ask what it means to become human in our in our own languages. What does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to be who we are in our own in our own languages? And he said, I think that's the question you should be asking people. And when I started asking folks that question, everything changed for me. Uh, people started telling me about their land-based identities, about how they live within the four sacred mountains, or they're the people of the tall pine trees or the people you know, of the four sacred mountains. And those, those identities and coming to understand those traditional identities that were in place pre-colonization are, and are still in place would uh, impact me in ways that I couldn't have imagined. So uh, yeah, I think John, um, John was really important for me in in my journey. And then, you know, uh, actually, I met him in San Francisco, and one of his youngest sons was there with him. And uh, his son had said, made this funny joke while I was there, was like, well, how are you even finding all these Native people? I said, well, Native people are everywhere. And he's like, I can't find them. (laughs) And I said, well, why don't you come with me? I'll introduce you to some. And then he came with me. (laughs) So I had John's son with me for about three months on the road. And he came with me to Canoe Journey. And he fell in love with one of my cousins. And (laughs) And so I actually got to talk with John quite a bit because I had his son. And he became a good friend of mine. And I really do miss him. Yeah. Well, you know, that seems like one of many examples that that you write about in the book of of deep connections, friendships or people who, you know, you 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 come to think of as family members or, you know, a, a co-host of a of a podcast in the case of Adrian Keene. I mean, I'm just curious how what working on this project meant for you in terms of just your own personal connections. Mm. 
Well, I certainly expanded my understanding of Native America. You know, before doing this project, I was very ethnocentric about Coast Salish tribes, <laughs> you know, and I would find on my journey that almost all Native people are like that, right? Like you go to Indian territory to Oklahoma and they say, we're the, we're the heart of Indian country, right? We're Indian territory. <laughs> <laughs> you go to Alaska and they say, we are really the real native traditional people because we, you know, were colonized last and we still sustain our ways by eating traditional foods. And, you know, and then you go to like Pueblo country and Pueblo say, well, there's 19 of us, you know, <laughs> like we're the, so everywhere that I went, I found that native people were very ethnocentric and all believed that they were the center of Indian country. <laughs> and, um, and I certainly wasn't any different <laughs> when I started this project. I mean, you know, it also seems like you're describing something distinctly human that all of us right. <laughs> can't help but think that we are deep down the, the center of the world. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And so, you know, that experience for me, uh, traveling around Indian country, uh, just really opened my eyes to to the, the complexity of Native identity. You know, we're certainly not a monolith. Uh, you know, there are, are so many different ways of being Native and uh, and um and singing and ceremony and language and food and and everyday culture that that was really eye-opening for me yeah there are people of all ages in your book from from elders to babies but there is such joy in a lot of your portraits of young people they i kept being drawn to them not to the exclusion of others but it just i would turn the pages and then there would be just another just radiant young person. I, I'm curious how you thought about youth as you were working on this project over a decade. <laughs> well, in, a lot of youth are less problematic than adults, right? <laughs> you know, and what do you, wait, and what do you mean by that? Time of cancel culture. So, <laughs> oh, I, you mean oh, literally, um, if you've been a around for six decades, it's it's possible that you as a photographer would find a reason that you didn't want to include them in the book? Oh, yeah. I mean, there were people, like there was this one chairman that I photographed who um, I found, later found out had disenrolled half of his tribe. And I, of course, I didn't put his photo in the book. Um, yeah, I mean, people, there were people that I would encounter that represented themselves one way and then later I would find out that they, in fact, were, um, you know, not a great person to be uh, photographing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that was heartbreaking for me, uh, you know, and I mean, they're certainly, um, and it's certainly worthy of addressing, but I'll answer your question about young people, not just that, but that I, um, I have centered my work around uh, young people, young Native people, I uh, very much wrote this book for young Native people. I've given, since we launched the book, we've given away over 3,000 copies to Native, young Native people at uh, in my tribe, in Swinomish, in Tulalip, at ACES. We gave away copies to all, which is American Indians in Science and Engineering and something, <laughs> Science and something. Uh, but it's like, you know, young Native scholars in STEM come from all over the country and we gave them all a book. You know, we gave books away at Parsons, at Berkeley, at USD. At the end of the month, I'm going to Unity, which is a massive gathering of thousands of Native youth who are all in leadership and we're giving books to them. So, you know, for me, um, I believe, you know, that the next generation holds all of our hope 
And certainly in this last week, I've been celebrating my niece and nephew, Dominic and Quinna, who just graduated from the University of Washington. And, and seeing them, uh, their joy and their accomplishment is, it, you know, it, it gives me so much hope. So um, can you describe you know, what is it all for, if not for the kids? Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> can you describe one one photo among hundreds in the book um, that's just full of joy? It, it, it's these sisters, Isabella and Alyssa Klein. Mm-hmm. Isabella and Alyssa Klein are are standing. Uh, we are outside of. They live in um, in Utah, in Salt Lake City. So we're there in the Salt Flats, in the Bonneville Salt Flats, isn't it? It's a beautiful shot. Uh, and their mom it brought me out to speak at um, at the university there. And so I was hanging out with them, and I said, "Do you guys want to go do a photo shoot?" And they were like, "Yeah, take us out here." And then as we were on our way out there, we had heard. Uh, that the Keystone pipeline had been opposed, which had been a major fight in Indian country. And so um, the, we were explaining it to the kids. And then when we got out there into the salt flats, they said, well, let's put our fists in the air and you could put this on your Instagram for Keystone. <laughs> and so I did. <laughs> and then I wrote this little poem for them. It says, we will not rest. Hoping is not enough. Our resilience shall prevail. Together we rise. Our ancestors always behind us. And you know, I um, I think that this image of these two just is one that gives is like I said, just gives me deep hope for the future. You, have you know, a- there was a time there was a time when our young people weren't able to wear regalia, when our young people weren't able to speak their language, when our young people didn't have access to these traditional cultures. So anytime I see a young person you know, actively practicing their culture, it makes me feel like, okay, our next seven generations are going to be okay. You know, we're going to be all right. <laughs> you have a chapter called Protect Native Women, a chapter I can call it an essay as well, interspersed among the, the photographs and sort of oral histories or interviews. You have a, a number of essays and you, you wrote this, if you read nothing else in this entire book, read this, Native Women Deserve Safety. Can you give us a sense for the the scale of the gender-based violence that you heard about as you traveled the country? Mm. Yeah, it, you know, it goes on to say our mothers have been robbed of the comfort of that radical piece of body. The level of violence that our indigenous sisters, daughters, and aunties experience is a public health emergency. Native women are two and a half more times more likely to be raped or sexually assaulted than any other population group in what is now known as the United States. Native women are murdered at 10 times the national average, and more than four out of five Native women experience violence in their lifetime. For many Native sisters, it is not a question of if, but I certainly, you know, have not escaped this reality myself. I have three sisters. You know, many of my sisters have also experienced this sort of violence. I uh, heard from many women on my travels about this reality, including one grandma who, you know, told me about, um, you know, she was a language teacher at her res and for her whole lifetime, she taught Cheyenne language. And one day the police came down to the school and they said, we need you to come down to the station. And um, they asked her to identify a body and it was her daughter's. And she'd been brutally attacked and violated and left on the side of the road. And she had passed away. And after that happened, that grandma, she she had a massive heart attack. She said she was dying of a broken heart. 
And when I asked her what um, she wanted me to tell people when I showed their photos, she said, tell them what's happening to our women. Ask them if they care. Ask them if they'll stand with us. Ask them if they're willing to do something about it. You know, and um, we know in, in, in I fear that we've lost that Zoom connection. Matika Wilbur, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Oh, can okay. you hear me? I can again. Sorry about that. But pl- please go on. Yeah. And so, you know, uh, where did you lose me? Did you lose me at Jenny? Um, you you said I, I – I mean, you were, you were talking about um, a grandmother who had nearly mm-hmm. died of a broken heart. Yeah. And, and when I – when I interviewed her, I asked her what she wanted me to tell people. And she said, tell them what happened to my daughter, ask them if they'll stand with us. You know? So when I wrote this book, I thought it was, you know, really important to talk about this, even though it was very difficult for me to discuss. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there is a disproportionate amount of media coverage for when a white woman goes missing versus when a Brown body goes missing. And that's something that we as a society have to remedy and have to question why it is that we're more willing to tune in when a white woman goes missing versus when a woman of color goes missing. You started this project before you were a parent, before you had a daughter, um, but now you do. You you have a daughter who, she's three years old now? Yes, yes. And you dedicate the book to her. Um, I'm curious how how becoming a parent, if becoming a parent, changed the way you thought about this project. Yeah, of course. I mean, being coming a mother changes everything, right? <laughs> and maybe you know, uh, but it certainly changed me. I um, I started critically evaluating what it means to put these value, these indigenous value systems into practice on a daily basis. Um, you know, we're Shtahobj, we're the honorable people, we're the people of the tide. How do I raise her to have a relationship with the tide? And how do I raise her to have a relationship with this place that she comes from? Um, and how do I do that on a daily basis? You know, and so those are, it really made me question, um, my values and my ethics and made me um, think about what it, what it means to, to, um, to have those ceremonies for her and to be disciplined in, in, in my own practice, right. To make sure that I'm the type of person that can foster that relationship and, and create that place-based identity for mm-hmm. her. Not too long ago, we just have about a minute and a half left, but you, you took your book to the Swinomish, Swinomish and, <clears throat> um, and to Lalip councils on your mom's and dad's sides. Can you describe those meetings? Well, yeah. When, um, when I first got the copy, the first copy of the book, I went to the Swinomish council and I asked them if they would support the book. And, um, and they they said yes, and they bought 500 copies to give away to each one of the tribal members. 
And then I went to Tulalip to my dad's tribe and I went into the boardroom and, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't ever asked the, the, the tribes to support the work financially. I, I thought it was the responsibility, you know, of my, of myself and um, of different philanthropic organizations to fund the work. And so when I went in, I said, you know, like, I've never come in here and asked you for money for this project, but I really want to be able to give this book to our, to our students. And I gave a whole presentation and at the end you know, the chairwoman of the tribe stood up and she said, you know, we're proud of you and we stand with you and we raise our hands to you. And everybody in the boardroom stood up and clapped. And and then my Auntie Judy was there and she said, you know, your grandmother, She, my grandmother was a judge and she had wanted to publish a book her whole life and had received rejection letter after rejection letter, uh, you know, and her books were never published. And she said it was her lifelong dream to to be an author. And here you are making that come true. And I can feel her here with us. And I can feel that she's so proud and, and it just made me feel so loved and uh, supported and accepted by my community. I certainly feel real blessed by that. Matika so Wilbur. they bought 1200 copies and we gave one of them away to all the schools in, in Snohomish County, which is so cool. Matika Wilbur, thank you so much and congratulations. Thank you. Appreciate it. That's the photographer and storyteller Matika Wilbur. Her new book is called Project 562. We'll be back tomorrow. Think Out Loud is supported by... Steve and Jan Oliva, the Rose E. Tucker Charitable Trust, Ray and Marilyn Johnson, and the Susan Hammer Fund of the Oregon Community Foundation.